Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host Theo Wan. Welcome to season two of the podcast where we are going to be looking at the stories and lives of the players, coaches, and personalities that make up the world of Ultimate. Each week I will talk to a new guest and we will talk about their journey into Ultimate, what their life in Ultimate looks like, their most memorable games, and a fun rapid fire segment to end the episode. If you like the podcast, we would love for you to subscribe and get the word out about the podcast to others. Your support is truly appreciated. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Haddock Sport Performance. Is your training making you better on the field? Haddock Sport Performance provides a complete strength and conditioning experience designed for ultimate athletes. With over five years of experience at the elite international level and a global group of athletes, they have come to appreciate that training is a partnership. And with HSP, their goal is to provide each athlete with a truly personal and unique training experience. They work tirelessly with you to get to know you as a person and as an athlete, and together build a plan for you to be your best in competition. If you are invested in your own success and performance, they are here to support you. To know more about their methods and philosophy, head to haddocksportperformance.ca or get a look at their day-to-day by checking out HSP on Instagram. Now with all that done, let's go. This week's guest is Charlie Eisenhood. Charlie is the founder, owner, and editor-in-chief for UltiWorld the largest media company dedicated to the sport of Ultimate. Charlie founded the company in 2012, and it has grown to four full-time employees and 30 contributors. He started playing Ultimate in 2005, and started his high school team in Albuquerque, New Mexico the following year. He played three years for New York University's Purple Haze and captain in 2011 as a senior, where they lost in the Metro East Regionals game to go for Nationals. He has played club for Albuquerque Sweet Roll, Baltimore Medicine Men, and New York Youngbloods. Here is my interview with Charlie Eisenhood. I'm here with the founder, owner, editor-in-chief of UltiWorld, Charlie Eisenhood. Really excited for this interview, hearing the story of the growth of UltiWorld and what it's done for the sport. So Charlie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. This is a pretty exciting podcast. For those listening, we get to hear about how UltiWorld started in 2012 and its growth uh, to now. So let's uh, take it back here to where you first started in Ultimate. How did you get involved in Ultimate as a player? So I started like like so many. Uh, I started playing in high school. Oh, and I guess technically I should take it back a little bit. And even in middle school, I was playing casual Ultimate with my friends, like on the quad. Uh, we used to play with an aerobie which is the you know the giant the giant ring shaped frisbee which is actually pretty sweet it's not very good for catching but it's pretty sweet to play with cuz you can just flick your wrist and throw it 80 yards so we used to play casually and then we were kind of started getting a little bit more competitive some like other people started to play with us we started playing with a whammo cuz we didn't know better and i think we'd started we we'd played enough you know after lunch in like 10th grade that I said, hey, you know, why don't we take our little team and go to this local Albuquerque tournament? So we went out to this tournament, and we'd never played really in an organized event. You know, honestly, we had some pretty good players, and I remember we played against, like, the top Albuquerque team. This wasn't a super competitive tournament. It was more like a kind of like a pickup type thing. But we played against the top Albuquerque team, and we were hanging with them. We were hanging with them. And... I remember we had like one of our players caught an under Evan and he turned around and he, and he bombed like a 60 yard backhand for a score and they called a travel on like the most ticky tack travel ever. We were so mad and they, they beat us by like one. So on that travel call. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awful. So like I got my first taste of the kind of cheaty travel call and at, at this tournament, Jerry came up to us guy from Albuquerque who was playing in the tournament and he said hey you know it's cool that you guys have this team out here I'm actually looking to try to coach a high school team would you be interested in having a coach so we got to talking and then the following this was in the summertime so the following school year I you know went through the athletic department and got a team set up exempted people from having to take PE class and and we had an ultimate team so I I don't remember exactly when we started playing. It might not have been, might not have been until the spring in a formal sense, which was kind of, a, I guess, the ultimate season. And there, there was not much of a scene in New Mexico. That was that. So, um, you know, my junior year of high school, 
started formally playing on an organized high school team and we actually with the help of uh somebody in in new mexico matt uh, matt Wu, he helped us get set up with a high school tournament so we had a four-team tournament we crushed everybody because most other people were probably more in like the pickup realm of things and you know now we had a coach and stuff with that win we uh, we applied to the what at the time was the high school western championships through usa ultimate back when they used to run high school championship events and we got in so we were the uh, the representative from new mexico and then we proceeded to lose all of our games well, that's pretty funny and then did you decide to go to school at nyu because of ultimate or what kind of drew you to nyu and uh, the east coast there well, so I, I went to a I went to a private high school that was like kind of uh, smallish, had a college campusy vibe, and I wanted to go to a school that wasn't really like that. So, big urban schools were on my list. So, NYU got in. Always wanted to go to New York City. I mean, I remember one of the questions on the on the application for NYU was besides going to New York City, what makes you want to go to NYU? And I was like, well, the honest answer is nothing. I don't know what I said. No. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I had nothing to do with Ultimate and nothing to do with Ultimate. I, I think I wanted to go to a big urban school where I could be, you know, more living in a city and not hemmed in to like a smallish college campus where that's the extent of of the like the social life so uh you know but but i i knew i wanted to play ultimate in college i just i didn't even at the time really have much awareness of like who was good and who was not i think i mean i think i knew that like the university of wisconsin had a good team because they they had put out the dvd and they'd won nationals and it was you know the Hodags, and I think I was aware of them, and that's about it. So it really just wasn't a factor. I wasn't steeped in the culture of Ultimate at all at the time. I should also mention that you know one of the reasons that I'm even was aware of what Ultimate Frisbee was at all is because my uncle Adam Ford has been playing for like 40 years. So he had introduced throwing a frisbee and like always encouraged me to play Ultimate. And uh, so he was a, he was an influence as well in, in terms of just getting started. Sounds good. And then can you talk a little bit about your career at NYU? I know I mentioned in the bio there losing in a heartbreaking game to go yeah. in the Metro East region there. So uh, can you talk about your career, how that maybe inspired you to pursue Ultimate further, even if it was just on the media side for your career? Yeah, good question. So, you know, I came into NYU I was one of the best players on my high school team. So of course I thought I was the hottest shit ever. And I came to NYU and I was like, you know, thought I knew better than everybody else. And you know, I, I was pretty good. I, I don't actually think I was at the end of the day. I don't think I was our best freshman recruit. We had a very strong freshman class my year, but, but, you know, I, I remember coming in and thinking that I knew exactly what was going on and what to do. And I was throwing push passes and I was throwing blades and like, I, I, you're just, playing pickup style, is what it sounds like. Like I didn't know the rules and the like culture. So I played freshman and sophomore years. We were not very good. We didn't make regionals my freshman year. We didn't make regionals my sophomore year. So we were a sectionals team that didn't make it out of the section, which, you know, in the Metro East is embarrassing. But we had been getting better. And my like I said, my freshman year class was very good. We had a lot of just really strong players. Lou Wang, who still plays a club out in Los Angeles, Hussein Carnegie, who just won a national championship with Sakai, Eli Wilkins Malloy, who doesn't really play Ultimate anymore, but was really good. Probably gonna forget some people, but we were we were a solid class. And so then my junior year I was away. I was studying in Argentina that year, playing Ultimate, but obviously not with my college team. And they made regionals for the first time. And I remember refreshing furiously on Scoreporter to see what was going on. And, you know, at the time there was like no, I don't think group me was a thing at that point. So I didn't have a way of really communicating with the team besides email. So it was like waiting for the email to see and but it was very exciting. They made it to regionals. So then I came back and somewhat to my surprise was voted captain 
despite the fact that I didn't play in my in junior year, my roommate at the time, Hussein and I were, were captains for our senior year. And we had came in to the first week, whenever we had our first meeting with returners in August or early September. And we said, you know, look, we're going to go to nationals. And I don't think anybody really believed us. I, I don't think anybody thought that that was like, what are you talking like? This is a team that's just barely made it to regionals. How is it like? I don't think we had a lot of buy-in at the beginning. We trained really hard. We worked out really hard. We had a lot of 10.30 p.m. to midnight gym sessions, like playing ultimate inside of the gym because that was the option in the wintertime for where we could play. We we worked and we worked and we worked, and, and we were good. We really were good. I, I, I contend to this day that we were the best team in the Metro East. We did lose in the final to Cornell, but I think it would have helped us a lot to have a steady hand at coach and we didn't have that. And so we were having to, you know, kind of player coach. The captains were making a lot of like line calling decisions. And we, we just, I think struggled in that Cornell game specifically to be able to understand what we needed to do. And like, we probably should have tightened our rotation a little more. And there's like, of course I go back and I think about all the things we did wrong, but you know, we were up in the game. We had a lead at halftime and I think we were the more talented team but, you know, experience in those kinds of games was just something we didn't have. We'd, we'd never really been in a spot like that. And I think it made it very difficult, especially for some players to, to kind of execute at, the, at, the be, at their best level because, you know, we just destroyed teams all weekend. And then all of a sudden we came up against a team that could actually play defense. And even though we were still able to score and be consistent on offense, I think the, the pressure made us falter down the stretch of the game. And I think we gave up three straight breaks to start the second half and when we never never were able to quite get back so didn't make it to nationals but had a very good season and uh that's kind of the story of nyu as it relates to the frisbee side the on-field side of things simultaneously i'll keep this brief i was pretty involved in a student blog that had started the when i was a freshman called nyu local kind of like an alternative news source to the student newspaper and so I had been doing a ton of writing on politics and then sort of on-campus news eventually. And I was the editor of that website when I was a senior. And so I had had a lot of interest in journalism, even though I wasn't pursuing it in my, in my major. Then I came out of school and was thinking and started talking to friends like, hey, we really need a news source for Ultimate. Like there's no, there's no news. You know, Sky Magazine existed at the time, but I wasn't really focused on much on on news news gathering, and so kind of started making a business plan and bringing together things that I was pretty interested in in uh, sports media, frisbee, and journalism. That's sweet. Those were the days of uh, RSD as well, right? That's where people would uh, would get their news. <laughs> RSD was was kind of like heaving out its last breath back in that in that time, and I think the the emergence of Ulti World put the nail in the coffin on RSD and, and, and Reddit. I should say that Reddit also started to replace RSD conversation. For sure. There's a lot of good uh, conversation on Reddit, especially when a controversial topic gets posted there. So then uh, in terms of starting Ulti World, some people who maybe are a bit younger in the audience don't know too much about the beginnings of Ulti World. I remember watching games from like Chesapeake Invite, I believe in like 2012, Goat was in that game. That's one of the very first tournaments we ever filmed. Maybe the first tournament. Yeah, you filmed. Was Chesapeake Invite. Yeah, the game of the tournament. It was uh, Chain. I remember this vividly. Chain Lightning. It was a condensed game of Chain Lightning versus Toronto Goat. That was uh, that was the big game to, uh, to watch there from Alti World. That's, that's probably still on our YouTube channel. Yeah, that's right. So I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story about that tournament because I think it's kind of like an interesting insight into the early years of Ulti World. So, you know, we'd started the site. I was writing a lot about the AUDL and the drama that was happening in the league at the time. And, uh, you know, we, we knew we wanted to start doing some video coverage. And so probably emailed the TD of Chesapeake. I don't even know if I did that. I might've just showed up, but I went to DC and my aunt and uncle live in DC. And I, like, I either, I couldn't rent a car because I was too young or I didn't really know how to go about doing that. So I was like, Hey, can you come pick me up and like, take me to this tournament? So I I went into DC and I rented a 10-foot ladder from a rental shop. And so then I I go on the the metro in DC with a 10-foot ladder. 
if people are looking at me like, what the hell is this guy doing? Because a 10-foot ladder is a pretty pretty big ladder. It's kind of clunky. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I get off the subway like near where my aunt and uncle live, and they, uh, they show up in their little Honda Civic or something, and I'm holding this 10-foot ladder. And, and they're like, uh, and I'm like, nah, don't worry about it. Like, we'll just put it in the trunk. I'll lash it with some string. So we, uh, we put the ladder in the trunk and it's sticking like six feet out the back as we're driving around. And like, I, I had some, some string and tied it down. And, uh, so then that's, that's how we used to film back in the day. I'd go sit up on top of a 10 foot ladder with a camera in my hand and film no tripod, no stability. And like, a crappy little camera that I had gotten when I was probably in high school. And that's, that was the original, that's how we filmed games back then. And I, I was filming from ladders for a couple of years, really. That's not safe. I don't encourage anybody to do something like that. You know, if it, if a wind were to blow, I would fall down off of a 10 foot ladder. That's what we started with. So, uh, Chesapeake invite was, I think the first club tournament that we filmed. Then I went out to Seattle and filmed, another one and then eventually club nationals and that's kind of what got the ball rolling for sure and in 2012 you also filmed a mid-atlantic regionals game to go correct with that's right truck stop and southpaw a very controversial game still to this day big uh stall down call <laughs> a classic game an absolutely classic game there was an ejection maybe the only ejection i've ever seen in an ultimate game certainly in a club ultimate game yeah, there was an ejection. There was a lot of bad blood. Those teams absolutely hated each other. They were both also very good teams. So uh, yeah, a, a a legendary game for sure. As Ulti World's growing, you're growing your video coverage. How did it feel to hire your first uh, full-time employee? And then when did you start to realize that maybe Ulti World's something I could do full-time and that there's a real uh, a need and uh, a place for it? So Ulti World was started in t- July of 2012 on, on nothing. <laughs> on I used airline points to book my flight to Seattle to film the tournament. That's the money that we had at the time was airline points. And, you know, that's kind of how we got started. I, I think we pretty soon after that had our first advertising client, VC Ultimate, of course, still a, a, a preeminent company. And started making a little bit of money from advertising and we were putting out, you know, videos on our YouTube. It was just kind of see if we can grow. Like how can we cover the sport? Started Deep Look, the podcast that I still do to this day. I used to ride my bike from Brooklyn from South Brooklyn to North Brooklyn and and record in the living room of my early partner in Ulti World, Wes Cronk, who's no longer involved but was my my co-host on the on the early episodes of Deep Look and somebody who was really really instrumental in helping get the website started. And you know, I, I'm not gonna go through every little nook and cranny detail, but it, it wasn't until 2018 that we hired an employee. So basically six years of growing. And we I mean we were paying people money for their work. We were paying our writers. We, I mean, we've always focused on making sure that we are paying people. It may not be market rates. You know, it's not like you're writing for the New York Times, but we've paid people for their their writing and their video work and whatever that they're doing for the website, at least in some capacity, really since day one. And finally, we got to the point where we felt confident that we could we could hire somebody and uh, Keith Rayner was our first employee. And I think it, it, maybe it was 2017. I, I, don't, I don't totally remember now, but I think it was 2018. That, you know, that was a long road. So I, I didn't take a salary. I really didn't take any money from Multiworld at all, besides like reimbursement for gas and stuff like that, until 2018, I think, uh, or may, maybe the start of 2019. And that's when I came on as a full-timer. So it was a long journey to get to the point where we felt comfortable hiring anybody. And, you know, it, it's still a work in progress. You know, it's, it's not, it, it's a small company. We have four full-time employees and I would love to add a fifth, but I don't know that we can, especially amidst Corona. We're trying like every ultimate company to just stay afloat right now. So the focus is on 
being smart and keeping costs down at the moment. But, you know, we hope to continue to grow. And I don't know how big it is realistic for a company like that covers Ultimate Frisbee to be. You know, I don't expect us to be a 50-person company anytime soon. But we hope to continue to make it possible for people who are interested in, involved, in being involved in, you know, Frisbee or sports media to to have opportunities to to keep moving up and and then you know hopefully into more full time positions. Appreciate you uh, sharing that, Charlie, and some of the behind the scenes. A lot of people probably don't know that about Ulti World and its journey. So, my last question about the growth of Ulti World: When did you decide to start? You have the subscriber package, which you still do now, but you had something before, which I used to get like a college pack. Yes, where you would pay for the season. That's what I was sort of introduced to back in I would say probably 2013, 2014, around there. Right. And uh, so what was the decision behind that to try to maybe monetize some of what you were doing, right? Yeah. So when I started Ulti World, I thought, I think as many did at the time, that the internet could be free and that people could make money online by creating cool content that people would then, that advertisers would pay to have ads shown and that there was a market for that. Because remember... That's how media had worked for hundreds of years. <laughs> like newspapers and magazines were either, you know, in some cases free or, or very inexpensive and supported generally by having very high circulations with advertising. And the internet started to really punish those companies, which we're still in the midst of, you know, local newspapers and magazines are in a terrible way right now. It's not a good time to try to get into that business. But, you know, people thought, okay, well, you know, we're going to just create like a cool website and we're going to have ads and that's going to pay for, you know, for for our for our company. And it became clear after a couple years that that was not realistic for Ultimate Frisbee. And really it's really proven to be not realistic for just about anybody. There are very few websites online these days that are truly supported by advertising alone. And we've seen more and more companies transitioning to direct subscription type models where the users of the site are paying. And maybe there's advertising, but it's a secondary piece of their revenue because it's simply not possible to outcompete Google and Facebook. It's not. They can deliver more value at a lower cost with a wider net than an individual website can possibly offer. So if you're an advertiser and you want to advertise to, I don't know, people who like the outdoors between the ages of 25 and 45, you could go to REI.com and place ads on REI. Maybe that's not a good example. Outdoor magazine, right? Or you could go to Google, pay half the rate, and say, put me on these, put me on outdoor websites. And they just fill thousands of outdoor websites with your ads. And you get, you know, incredible reams of data. And and, and there's a reason that Google and Facebook have become these enormous, monstrous companies because they have basically cornered the market on internet advertising. So I know this is a long aside, but I think it's important to talk about because even though UltiWorld to this day has advertising partners and you know it's an important part of our business, it's just simply a fact that the market for Ultimate Frisbee is too small to support a major a substantial amount of money coming from advertising that could that could pay for you know the operations of the website. So early on, we recognized that people would pay for video. And at the time, you know, we sort of emerged at the same time as NextGen and the NextGen network who were selling a video package. So we didn't try to rewrite, you know, re recreate the wheel. We were like, all right, well, we'll sell a video package too. So I think 2013 was the first year we did, it was the first year we did college coverage and we made a some sort of college video package that we were that we sold and that 
evolved over time exactly what that was. We had a college pack, we had a club pack, and there was an individual pack and there was a team pack. And uh, basically, and I think maybe for a while we were also selling individual games, but we stopped doing that. And I think, you know, people didn't like that. You know, individual teams were like, why can't I just buy my game? And the answer is, and I think some teams probably still wonder that, the answer is that the economics don't make any sense, right? If team wants to buy just their games and they want to pay five or 10 bucks just for their game, and then they would send it around to their whole team. We can't, we can't, we can't exist, right? It's, it doesn't make sense. We have to have the. We've we've packaged it the same way that a cable company packages their networks, or you pay for a. You know, if you want to watch a UFC match, you pay for the whole thing. You don't just get to watch. You don't just pay for the main event. And and the it's it's just the economics of that are the only way to make it sustainable. So the big thing that changed was that in 20, early 2017, I think February 2017, we switched from a sort of like pack-based model to a subscription-based model. And the thinking at the time was like, we should have an option for people who aren't interested in video, but want to be, you know, want to access more kind of in-depth analysis, special features podcast bonuses and and like content but at a much lower price point because at the time we were selling packs for i don't know like 75 bucks or you could buy a 15 dollars a month subscription that would get you access to all the video and that's a pretty high price point frankly if you think about you know how much things cost when you you know you want spotify you get all of the music in the world for 9.99 a month you go to Netflix, it's like eight bucks a month for more video content than you could possibly consume. And we were charging $15 a month for Ultimate Frisbee content. And so we were like, you know, we're probably pricing a lot of people out at this price point. So we said, all right, we're going to create these three tiers, uh, mini, full, and plus, $4 a month, $13 a month, and $20 a month. And different pack, different benefits at the different levels video access at the $12.99 a month price point. And it was an immediate and overwhelming success from just like a raw, you know, revenue perspective, because there was in fact a market for people who didn't want to have to have access to all of the video, but wanted extra features, some video, and that $4 price point made it possible to give people a lot of value at you know, who weren't necessarily interested in having everything. And so that is the model that we have built around since. And it's not a surprise because this is the same thing that we've seen a lot of other companies do. Whether you look at a company like the New York Times or smaller websites, a lot of like small niche sports websites, including like sort of the aggregator type sites that do 25 different sports. The Athletic, right? If you're looking for sort of like top professional league coverage of media coverage. It's a subscription, right? It's a monthly or annual subscription that you pay. And the reason everyone has gone to this model is not because, you know, they're greedy or something. It's because it's the only way to make this work. (laughs) It's the only way to exist online. So uh, I know this is a long-winded answer, but that move really enabled us to start growing more. And we were able to hire some full-time people eventually and start to continue to expand our coverage, doing more, you know, youth coverage, high school national invite. We've did a ton more international coverage this past year, you know, 2019, obviously 2020 is a, a big wash for obvious reasons. And, you know, we hope to continue to expand. So that's the the goal is to continue to try to add value to the subscription and make it something that people really feel like is uh, something that they that they is a no brainer. We want it to be a no brainer. We want it to be a no brainer like Netflix or Hulu. You know, obviously, we're never going to have the level uh, amount of content that those kinds of big billion dollar companies have. But we want for ultimate frisbee fans and disc golf fans to feel like it's uh, an obvious choice. Last question for this segment here of your journey. What's some advice you would give to someone who wants to 
kind of do their own startup, potentially in sport or an ultimate, or get into sports uh, media or ultimate media? Get into sports media. Uh, just don't. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say that, but I, I've seen other people in media say similar things recently. And I think that for a lot of people, they need to understand that the media world right now is very difficult to make a living in. And if you're an exceptional writer, an exceptional thinker, and and you're willing to work your ass off to get a staff position somewhere, then power to you. But understand that the the the, the challenges are very real because the industry is not growing. And so there's only so many positions out there and you have to, I think, be willing to grind. I mean, I, you know, obviously... I knew when I was getting into Ulti World that it was going to be a challenge, right? I was starting something from scratch and there was no money and we didn't take any, you know, outside funding. So it, it was like, let's see if we can make this work. And so, you know, obviously it's not that there are no jobs. It's just that it's really hard to get media jobs, period, at a time when there's fewer options than ever to get those jobs because it's not an expanding market. Now, speaking specifically to Ultimate Frisbee, you know, I think Ulti World is Ulti World is always looking for new people. We want new writers, we want new video people, we want we want new people to get involved all the time. I can't say that there's full-time positions available. I will, I will be for perfectly honest, but I will also say that, you know, there's an opportunity for advancement and it's a good like part-time gig. I think for people who, you know, it, it, often you can work from home on your own time to write an article or, you know, video edit, for example. And if you want to get involved with tournament reporting, you know, going to tournaments, all that is paid for. We cover the cost of flights and housing and everything else. And then you also get paid. Now it's, you're not going to make a ton of money at least right away, but you know, we pay for every piece of content that is created. So at least on that front, I think it's a good part-time option for someone who's interested potentially in trying to get into sports media for the long term. It's the same kind of thing. Like if you're if you're a great writer and you're working at writing about Ultimate, there are positions, right? Eventually USA Ultimate is going to be looking to hire more media people. Right now it's brutal because of COVID. And they're short, probably two to three media staffers. But at some point, they're going to hire those positions back. And that could be a position somebody might go to. The semi-pro leagues are going to be looking for media people. So it's there's options. It's just they're limited. So I want to be really clear that it's like it's a risky decision, right? If you want to become an electrical engineer, you're going to get a great job right away out of college and probably make a really nice salary. If you want to get into sports media, you're going to have to really want to do it because it's a long road to a, a spot where you know, you're making a comfortable salary doing it. And I, I think for some people, they make that choice, right? I, I made that choice. And I just, I want to say that it's, you know, if you're on the fence about it, maybe think about going into something where there's more of a, more of a way to, to make sure that you can build a career because sports media is real tough. Appreciate the advice there from Charlie Eisenhood himself. And that will lead to segment two, your day-to-day -day life there. So can you kind of give a, a quick five-minute snapshot for the audience, what your day-to-day -day life looks like uh, for Ulti World, obviously uh, pre-COVID there? Uh, what does it look like kind of normally, uh, nine to five, you know, Monday to Friday? But then also, what about tournament weekends? What does that look like, nationals, things like that? Sure. So my 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 Monday to Friday isn't very different than it used to be. I've worked from home since I started Ulti World. So I am also in the work from home world now during COVID along with everyone else. And it does feel a little different. But for the most part, I'm doing the same kinds of things. It's just there's a lot more monotony because of the lack of tournaments and event planning. There's a lot of things that I'm not doing right now that I would do during a normal year, planning for live streaming, developing plan for our coverage at tournaments. I do a lot of the travel logistics management. So I'm booking flights, I'm booking hotels, I'm getting Airbnb, I'm contacting 
companies to get scaffolding or other equipment that we need for the tournament, um, getting to events. You know, when we go to nationals, I'm usually going to be there two or three days in advance and I'm going to be spending, you know, 14 hour days prepping. So going to the fields, setting up cables, building out our live streaming production, working on graphics, developing the preview content, publishing stuff. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into those big events. But specifically Monday to Friday, I'll try to give like a little actual daily snapshot. I get up, you know, usually around 8 a.m. First thing I'm going to do is get coffee and usually read the newspaper. Maybe I just read a little bit. Maybe I read the whole thing. Like the delivered newspaper or like online? I, you know, I actually do get it delivered, but I typically read it on my iPad. The, uh, the Wall Street Journal has a very good iPad app for like reading the news. So sometimes I read the paper, but normally I read the paper when I'm like going out, like if I need to leave and go somewhere and like I'm going to take the subway, but I'm not doing much of that during COVID. So typically I've been, I've actually stopped getting the paper subscribe, like turn it off for weeks at a time because I'm not actually reading the, the physical paper. Although I do like to do that on weekends. So I read the news and then I, depending on the day of the week, I have different tasks. A lot of meetings on Monday as we prep for the week. Typically I'm writing stories. A lot lately it's been about disc golf and not ultimate. There hasn't been a lot of ultimate news, but writing news articles, calling people for stories, editing other people's columns or articles. I have two podcasts that I record every week. I have the Sideline Talk podcast, which I do once every three to five weeks. I write a mailbag column for both websites every week, you know, and then just various administrative tasks. So a lot depends on the week, what specific tasks I have to work on. We're also always in the midst of thinking ahead and doing some long-term planning. I'm typically just working in my living room. So I sit at the kitchen table, sometimes I sit on the couch and work on on various tasks and and try try to stay focused. So COVID times are weird because even though like I'm used to working from home, it's it feels a little different and without the event planning. And so the the thing that I get used to is the the kind of the rhythm of tournament season. Cuz I'm probably traveling twice a month on average for tournaments. And you know, some sometimes it's every weekend. You know, if I'm like especially in the in the busy season like May, I might be doing April and May, you know, we have we're going to have college regionals, we're going to have college nationals, two weekends of college nationals for D3 and D1. So I'm typically gone from New York for like 2 weeks just for that those events alone. And I often am also doing uh, you know, coverage of AUDL games in some capacity at that time, either as a producer or as a commentator. So that can be really busy. Like April and May can be crazy. And then usually as calms down a little bit in June and then July, you start to get club season tournaments going. August is always very busy with US Open and everything else. International tournaments have started to fill more of my calendar as well. So I'm, I'm on the road a lot, you know, and the, and the big events usually take me away for a week plus at a time. That's been the hardest thing for me during COVID is just not having any of that travel and kind of just getting out of the rhythm of that. I just think it's it's hard to stay motivated and and focused when there's really nothing happening in Ultimate right now, and we're you know trying to cover the stories amidst COVID. You know, initially there was lots of news because it was things were getting canceled and things were getting rescheduled, and now we've kind of settled into the, just the nothingness of there's just there's really no Ultimate being played, and everyone's just kind of like trying to hunker down and and stay alive as uh, as companies and as organizations i think it's hard to to stay as focused and motivated i think a lot of people probably experience that during covid regardless of the kind of the industry they work in for sure and can you uh, this will be the last part of uh this segment here can you give a snapshot of what nationals is like in terms of coverage i've you know heard that you you're staying up super late you're getting up super early because you got to get these recap articles out what does that look like uh for the big club nationals tournament I think we had 20 people at Club Nationals in 2019. It's insane. <laughs> I, I am very focused these days on the video production side of things and all of the live coverage. So my day looks different from other people's day. I'm typically getting up very early and leaving early 
setting up at the at the field site and then streaming games all day, tearing down, coming back, getting stuff ready for the next day. And I'm so tired because I have to get up so early that I often go to bed before other people. But writers are getting up a little bit later. They're getting to the fields. They're reporting and doing live blog stuff all day. And then they get back and are writing recap type coverage, other analysis until late in the night. And, you know, it's it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a fun kind of festive atmosphere. You know, we, we collaborate, people are chatting. It's not like we just like are mechanical automatons just grinding away. We had a really nice house this, uh, this past year in San Diego, had a cool balcony and we could like see out to the water. And, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to find a house that's big enough to hold 20 people. I'm sure the club teams can experience the same thing. And we don't have like unlimited budgets. We can't just get mansions, you know, and then some editors, right? Because the hardest part is the editors who need to edit all of the content that's being written, that's being turned in at 11 p.m. So then somebody has to edit that. And so we we kind of changed our system a little bit this past Club Nationals because we were having a real problem with the bottleneck of that content coming in late. So we had editors whose job it was simply to stay up and edit that content. So they might stay up until two, maybe even three in the morning, and then they'll sleep in and they won't get to the fields until late morning after rounds have started. Because it's like we used to, you know, it would be me and maybe one other editor staying up and trying to publish all of that content. And then I would get, you know, four hours of sleep, which maybe you can do one night. But as the weekend goes along, you, you just start to lose your faculties. I mean, you, you're, it's just hard to, to, be, to execute on, especially when you're trying to do live video and be focused when you're not getting any sleep. So we're, we're still refining that. But, you know, we have multiple reporters covering every division. Uh, we have a big video team with videographers and a producer. And really these days we have two kind of two producers director and a producer and uh, it's it's a big operation and then you know at, at some tournaments we'll have my uh, my wife Liz came along to club nationals she usually comes to one event with me every year and she was like helping out with you know just making sure everybody got fed because that's it's kind of his own job it's too expensive for us to go out to restaurants because we have so many people so she did an awesome job like cooking and uh, making sure that we had, you know, everybody was had had sustenance during the day. So it, it, it's it's a big operation, and we're uh, we we take it really seriously, like to to make sure that we're covering the tournament as you know in as in depth a way as possible. Because when you're only getting a slice of two games live in any round, there's a whole lot of other ultimate taking place that no one can see. So we want to try to be the eyes and ears for anybody who's watching if you've ever taken a look at ulti world's coverage at any tournament there's like a live page you got twitter updates from other teams it's just a, a big operation there for just covering the tournament so that's awesome and so charlie we're going to go to segment three here memorable games want to focus here on on your time with ulti world what's your favorite game that you've ever covered or tournament that you've ever covered with ulti world i think if you ask most people who are there college nationals the year Minnesota Grey Duck got the crazy win over Pittsburgh in the night game. I think Kyle Weisbrod just put this as his number one game of the decade. That whole experience, that whole night of Ultimate and that tournament just in general was just amazing. So that that's that's a super memorable one. I've always really enjoyed the high school national invite. Those tournaments are super fun. It's like so energizing, especially coming off of a long college season. I'm usually pretty tired. And then I get to go to this high school tournament and it's like the next generation of Ultimate players coming up. And, you know, we have many of the best teams, high school teams in the country there. And uh, there's always great games and it's just like a, a great vibe. So that's fun. Outside of nationals, I think my favorite tournament is Northeast Club Regionals. That's just a, a a classic event. You know, everybody from the Northeast is there. It's beautiful. It's like 
just the early signs of fall. There's it's crisp air. You want to have like hot coffee in the morning and then iced coffee in the afternoon. And uh, it's just like a, a great like part of the culture, like regional tournaments. And I think this would be true no matter where regionals was or where I live. But the, the fact that it's always in Devons, Massachusetts, and it's this big open flat field site where you can just walk between all the fields super easily. It's just a it's a special event. And uh, so that that definitely stands out. It's hard for me to pick out individual games anymore because I've seen so many. <laughs> I've been I've been to a lot of tournaments over the years. There's specific games that stand out to me. The men's final of the 2016 World Championships between USA and Japan. Like some weird games like 2013 UCF versus Iowa State women's pre-quarter, I think it was. It was just a crazy ass game. Brilliance versus Huck at the World Club Championships in 2018 and in Cincinnati. That was a crazy game. And I'm just like coming up with ones that have like that stick in my brain. Pony Sockeye 2018 semifinal. I don't remember the year, but like the AMP mixtape game for the for the championship when mixtape won their first title. That was a crazy game. Uh so yeah, you know, there's there's so many good games. Like randomly UNC versus Oregon men's semifinal at Stanford Invite from like three years ago. Just like insane offense the whole game. A, a, a classic from the archives and still one of my favorite games I've ever filmed. Very, very early, that first year of Ulti World, the double-wide sockeye game from ECC, which is on our YouTube. There are, is it, I can't remember now if it's no breaks or one break. I think there's one break in the whole game. And it's just an epic game. There's like some drama and it's like this incredible offense being played by both teams. And that's just a, a, a very memorable one. So there's so many. I can't name them all. Yeah, yeah. we spent a couple hours here doing that. But now we're going to transition to your least favorite game or tournament that you've covered for whatever reason that is. The worst for me is always when it's the weather is bad. <laughs> so the the one that's, you know, I, I try to forget it was pro flight finale of 2016, I think, which is the windiest tournament I've ever covered. And so you have, you know, the best teams in the world playing the worst ultimate you've ever seen. And we were streaming. And so streaming is very difficult when it's that windy because no matter how well you cover up your microphones it's just sounds like wind on the broadcast and combine that with the fact that it was so windy that we were physically holding the pop-up tent down like with our arms as we were broadcasting the game because if we didn't physically hold it like we lowered it down to where it was barely above our heads and held on to the metal you know beams because if we didn't physically hold it down it would blow away and i mean you can see in the background of the video tents are just rolling just but just i wonder how many pop-up tents were just destroyed that weekend and 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 then the ultimate was just horrific because it was impossible to complete upwind passes and you know there there were i remember we we filmed a mixed game that was like just awful i mean just awful Uh, like like 15 turnovers a point. Like, I don't remember. It was not high scoring. It was just, it's just miserable to play ultimate in those conditions, to watch ultimate in those conditions, and definitely to stream ultimate in those conditions. So that tends to be the worst, or like if it's really pouring rain. I think, you know, obviously we, we always have to pick a big streaming schedule before a tournament, and you have some game you're really excited about, and it's a clunker happens and it's just like sometimes it's hard to predict what the best games are going to be and so you know some years we get really lucky and we just get awesome games the whole weekend and it's like half the games go to double game point other years they're all blowouts and so the years when it's all blowouts that's not that fun but uh, I mean that's the beauty of sports you never know yeah I know you're trying to put that tournament out of your memory there Charlie so uh <laughs> <laughs> that's why you don't remember the year right so yeah, I mean, I could look it up, but don't don't go looking for the video. That's all I'll say about it. As long as the game didn't end up 1-0 or something. It wasn't that bad. I mean, there's still, like, 
tremendous players. You know, if there was a college tournament in those conditions, it would literally, we probably just wouldn't have streamed. <laughs> so there you go. That's uh, insight there. So we're going to move to segment four here, rapid fire. We're going to do some ultimate related to start. So would you rather throw your flick or backhand? Backhand. What about a hammer or a scuba? Mm, I'd go hammer. I think I have a little more control with the hammer. Would you rather drop a pole in your own end zone or drop a catch in the attacking end zone you're going for? Well, I've done both of those things. I would probably say I'd rather drop a catch. At least I have a chance to like make it right. But when you drop the pole, you're usually done. So you have dropped a pole before? I've dropped a pole. I've dropped a pole. I think I, think I played on a pickup like NYU team for a club sectionals. This wasn't even that long ago. This was like three years ago. It was a real dewy morning and came out first point, dropped a pull on the opening game. <laughs> not, not what you're looking for. Would you rather win five silver medals at nationals or one gold medal? One gold. Easy call. I, 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 think, I think no one remembers you if you finish second five times. I respect the excellence, but you know, no one wants to be the team that can never win it. That's pain. That's painful. And think about those, like the Oregon men's ultimate team, just so close so many times, never, and just can't win. It's brutal. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. So far, these are some questions that Ulti World is definitely going to recognize. So <laughs> should ultimate be renamed? I think the ship has sailed. I, I think, the name is not particularly good, but you know, when when have you seen a an activity just like change its name? It, it's too late. You know, we needed to do that back in the seventies. I don't really think Ultimate's a great name for a sport, but at the same time, I, I don't really know what else we would call it. And I think uh, it it just it's stuck. Like people know what Ultimate Frisbee is, and that's fine. Should Ultimate have referees? Because I know some people may argue, if, you know, if you watch the NBA Finals, if there were no refs, it would just be like, hey, why everyone be calling fouls? Do you think Ultimate should have refs even at the world's level? It's a complicated question. I don't know that I can answer it in a rapid fire style. I think I have always been open to the idea of having referees. So like, you know, when the AUDL came out and said we we're going to have refs, a lot of people were like, this is a terrible thing. You can't play ultimate with referees. It's not the same sport. I don't really feel that way. To me, officiating, there are pros and cons to each style. And I think that the reason that, you know, the AUDL and back before it folded to MLU have chosen referees is because of the advantages that confers from a watchability perspective. Because you don't get the ticky-tack calls because you can't make the ticky-tack calls. So there's a lot of there's more game flow generally, which is a good thing when you want to spectate. That said, I think people understand that the culture of calling your own fouls is important from just kind of like the the development of character in the sport, and I think a lot of people correctly value that. And so I would never want to see referees at the high school level or the probably even the college level. I understand the desire to have a more in control official for spectator focused ultimate at the top level. What I will say is that I think over time, I've grown to believe that it would actually be best if players were able to call their own fouls, even in the AUDL. Hot take right there. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. I think you can maintain many of the elements of referee game flow by keeping many of the tasks in their hands. They still have a whistle. They call the travels. They call the picks, maybe. They call the line calls, all those things. But direct fouls. You hit me on the arm while I was going up. Let players call that. Because it's hard, as we've seen in any sport, for them to always to get that right. So if a player calls a foul, and the other player doesn't immediately just say, yes, I agree, 
the referee will make a ruling immediately. It doesn't need to be like an observer who comes in, has a conversation, goes and talks to the other observer, takes 60 seconds to get to a resolution. You can have a referee who immediately rules on whether they think it was a foul or not. So they're still watching the game in the sense of being a ref of like, yeah, I think that was a foul or I know I don't. But players can then self-govern on fouls. Because like if somebody hits you on the arm on the mark, a ref's not going to see that most of the time. And if somebody tries to get away with that, it's it sucks, right? Like people who are hacking on the mark, that's nobody wants that. It ruins the game. Like you have to have protection to be able to throw. Otherwise, it's the game doesn't work. So I think not only does that kind of like solve that issue while not removing the the kind of the game flow because you still have instant referral to a decision. It also allows for players like for for you to market that more that like players are in control of the game. And I think if that happens, you know, would there be more of an opportunity to be cooperative with USA Ultimate? with the World Flying Disc Federation, where player control is a key element. I think that I understand why the AUDL has the system that they have, but a level of compromise there would likely enable core element that many people feel is at you know the center of spirit of the game, which is player control on foul calls, to exist at the highest level in a spectator format. And I've encouraged the Premier Ultimate League to move further from observers towards more control with their officials. But I think that they're more along the right lines in terms of thinking about keeping player control at the heart of the game. But I think they can do more to improve game flow speed and not focus on it just being observers. Like you want to make sure that, you know, there's no reason to stop gameplay during a during a call like you can do what the udl has done and and let people just continue to play and so i i I think finding a balance between game flow and player control is crucial because i've seen many games and when there's no observers some games can really get bogged down because there's a call and then people you know argue about it for 90 seconds and and like from the from the side of the players like that's fine because it's like you don't necessarily care how the game televises it, it's just about playing and so when you're playing pickup no one needs a referee right and the same way that when you play pickup basketball no one needs a referee but at the top level if you want it to be a game that's going to spectate well and that people can enjoy watching and not get frustrated by just watching constant downtime i think having somebody there who has more power to move the game along by removing some elements of calls like travels into the hands of the official, but still allowing foul calls um, to be in the hands of the players. Yeah, that's a, no, that's a good answer there, Charlie, because I know some people do argue for that. It's kind of a modified version of the referee observer thing. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to share a meal with three people in the course of human history. They can be anyone who's uh, living or dead. You got to pick three who you would share a meal with. Oh, wow. That's, I've never been asked this question, so I've never really thought about this. Okay, so let's see. I think Amelia Earhart would be one. I'm like pretty big into aviation and flying and sort of just like exploration. And she's one of the you know people who I think is sort of most fascinating on that front obviously as a as a pioneer in 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 flight first woman to fly across the atlantic solo and so i i think she would be one abraham lincoln who i've always been fascinated by as a you know one of the just the the, the most important american presidents in us history i i think i'll say leonard euler who was a mathematician from the 18th century like did an incredible amount to develop mathematics but both both in calculus with the Euler's number e 
as well as a lot of algebraic concepts and exponential function. There's a ton of stuff. The Euler's identity, e to the i pi plus one equals zero. So, um, you know, I, I'm not a mathematician, but I, I, I love math. I, I tutor and I teach a lot of math and I studied economic theory in college. So I did a lot with, there's a lot of mathematics in, in sort of theoretical economics. So Euler is, is, I mean, if I have to pick one, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good people you could choose, but I would just love to like sit down and have a conversation with somebody who just like has that level of mental strength, um, and, and like developing mathematical concepts that didn't exist before. Like that to me is so crazy. Like the, the idea that somebody could just like create new mathematical rules without any foundation on which to build, you know, to come up with something from scratch. Like it's, it's like unfathomable, honestly. I have no idea whether Euler would be a good dinner partner, <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, I would hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. You just pick his, pick the brain. Uh, I know you uh, live in New York city there, so I'm not sure if backyards are in abundance, but I want you to picture this. You're going to have a concert in your backyard and you're allowed to book any band or artist in the world. You got to pick three and the order in which they play. And they could be uh, bands that are active or artists that are active or bands or artists that have disbanded or not alive anymore. I feel like this one might even be harder. We'll open with Billy Joel. I grew up listening to my parents' Billy Joel Greatest Hits CD. That was like some of the earliest music that I listened to besides like, you know, children's music. And like, I didn't really even discover pop music in a meaningful sense until I was in early middle school. So I didn't know at the time, like who was popular when I was that age, like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, you know, and like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. I wasn't really aware of that, but like Billy Joel was one that I listened to a ton and still listen to Billy Joel. And I've, I've had the opportunity to see Billy Joel in concert at Madison Square Garden where he plays like monthly, you know, pre-COVID. And it was awesome. And I think uh, it would be sweet to have him in the, the backyard concert setting. I can't decide if I should keep it themed. I feel like I just need to pick three very different sounds. I will go number two with Casey Musgraves, who is, you know, I think it's making some of the most exciting country-influenced music right now. I've just been super impressed. Like, her most recent album is is on rotation, and I think she's just, like, making incredibly cool-sounding music. I feel like it would be a good follow-up to Billy Joel as well. And I just kind of like the light, sort of like ethereal type country music. And then number three, we're going to just go in a completely different direction. And we're going to have Rage Against the Machine in a, some kind of reunion tour. I feel like they were going to play Coachella this year or something. I get to bring R- Rage Against the Machine back for uh, my backyard concert. So uh, obviously the, a very different sound, but just like such important music rage against the machine is is my number three so this is the last question here you can't pick ultimate as your answer for this question so i'm going to give you all the talent in the world and you got to tell me what sport you want to play what organization or team or it could be an individual sport that you'd want to play for i want to play basketball basketball is my first love i um, started playing basketball when i was probably like five years old I played all the way up through high school. I still play pickup. You know, I always wished I could be taller and better at basketball. I'm a great shooter, but I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little on the short side. I'm like 5'9". Don't really have the ball handling skills to make up for my 5'9 height. I would have to choose my, my team, New York Knicks. Who doesn't want to be a New York Knick and play in Madison Square Garden? Apparently nobody, considering how bad our team is. <laughs> Come on, KD. You're supposed to be a Nick, man. Yeah, the Stephen A. Smith memes about that was really funny. <laughs> this is one of the worst days that I've had in my life. So, yeah, I would play for the Knicks, and um, I don't know, I guess I'd be shooting guard. So, starting shooting guard for the Knicks. Back when they had Carmelo, or? Sure. I would be sweet to play with Carmelo. All I got to do is, like, get in the rock and then just be ready to shoot threes. That's, like, that's my game. So, that uh, concludes our show there, Charlie. If our audience wants to find out more about you, I know they can find your company, Alti World. Everyone 
listening probably knows about it, but if not, why don't you plug uh, your socials if you have them and then uh, kind of Ulti Worlds as well. Sure. So I'm I'm on all of the social media platforms, although these days I don't really use them much, but I'm at C Eisenhood pretty much everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, connect with me on LinkedIn. <laughs> I don't really use it, but I have these accounts and maybe someday if I'm not like running a media organization, I might spend more time posting. Like Twitter is definitely my uh, my preferred social media. But Ulti World is everywhere as well. You could follow at Ulti World on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We also have disc golf accounts, Ulti World DG on Twitter, Ulti World Disc Golf on Instagram and Facebook. And those are much more active. I mean, it's not me, but it's uh, the, the site, site I run, obviously. Ultiworld.com slash subscribe. You get access to the Ultimate and the Disc Golf benefits. And, you know, eventually we'll have Frisbee back to start posting videos again. <laughs> yeah, we're hoping 2021. So, Charlie, thanks again for coming on the show, taking time out of your schedule, working from home, New York City. So, uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I interview Britt DeSantos, handler for the Elite Women's Club Team Toronto Sixers. In this interview, Britt shares about how her sister got her into Ultimate and the experience winning her first national championship gold medal in 2019. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Juan underscore and underscore only underscore sports. You can see some of my commenting highlights on YouTube at the channel Juan and Only Sports. And you can reach out to me by email at theowan 6 at gmail.com. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.